Hey guys, welcome to That Florida Feeling. How is everybody this week? Turkey season is upon us, spooky season is gone, and judging by my poll, most of you are already planning your Thanksgiving dinner. I can't say I blame you. Um, the other poll showed that most people still eat turkey for Thanksgiving. Again, kind of a tradition. I do not eat turkey for Thanksgiving. I We grill steaks. Um, it started when we first got married, actually on our honeymoon, and we just kind of kept it. And I think it's a good tradition. I mean, isn't that what holidays are, kind of making your own traditions? But thanks to everybody who has interacted with the Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube pages. Still figuring out YouTube, guys, I promise. Um, thanks for blowing up the TikTok page, though. I love you guys for that. Uh, thanks for sharing the memes. Thanks for posting the memes. Uh, don't forget to share the group and page with your friends. It kind of just gets the podcast out there. Same with reviews. Thank you if you've reviewed on Spotify or Apple. Same thing. It just kind of gets to where more people can see the, uh, the podcast. I actually can see on my podcast app that I record this on that uh, a lot of more people are searching for the podcast. So I really appreciate you guys helping me out with that. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this podcast really if it wasn't for you guys. So today we're going to talk about some of the bad times in Florida. And I mean, Florida's had a lot of good times. They've had a lot of bad times. Um, But it seems like they had a lot of bad times all at once. Um, And Florida, Florida had its own set of wars, the Seminole Wars. And today we're going to talk about the second Seminole War and the piece that was around, the piece that followed the first Seminole War and then the second Seminole War. And... Um, it just kind of gives an insight as to what shaped Florida for what it is today. Now, of course, we talked about the first Seminole War and how they had a peace and it, you know, they still wanted to move the people to the reservations. And if you haven't heard about the first Seminole War, I do have a podcast episode on it um, from, I want to say, July. So you can go check that one out to catch up because um, today we are going to talk about the second Seminole War and what led up to it and the peace that followed it as well. Now, after the first Seminole War, the resettlement of the Native Americans did not go as planned. Uh, They were trying to take them across the Mississippi uh, to a reservation, and it not a lot of people wanted to go. I mean, personally, I wouldn't want to leave Florida. It's nice, warm, some hurricanes, but that's the worst of it. I like, you know, I like it. I think that they probably liked it, too. Otherwise, they wouldn't want to leave. That was their home. So as they're trying to relocate these people, the tensions grew worse. Um, And it really began to grow worse because... The Native Americans were in their area that they were supposed to be in, and white settlers were kind of encroaching on that area that they had been promised. And we're talking the 1800s. This is the time period. So after the First Seminole War, you know, the tensions are still really high. Uh, Private Kinsley Dalton was actually killed by the Seminoles when he was carrying mail from Fort Brooke to Fort King through the reservation. Um, That was really one of the events that kind of set off more tensions to lead to the Second Seminole War. The final event, though, that led it was when Chief Charlie Imathla, he was done. He was tired of fighting. He saw that the Second War was coming. He sold his cattle. He prepared his people to go west. And in doing so, he basically betrayed the entire Seminole party. Uh, The Seminoles had already said that anyone who sells their possessions to the white would be seen as an act of betrayal to other Seminoles. And Charlie did this. And Charlie was met by none other than Osceola on his way home and killed for his actions. So between these two uh, events, the realization that Seminoles were growing unhappy really kind of dawned on the U.S. again. Like, hey, we thought we had it. We didn't have it. What are we going to do? 
so when they realized this, the St. Augustine militia kind of saw the writing on the wall and they asked the War Department for 500 muskets. They knew that another war was coming or at least some skirmishes. So they got their 500 muskets. They mobilized 500 volunteers under Brigadier General Richard K. Call and they were ready. Now, as they're preparing, the Indian War Parties are also preparing. They began to raid farms and settlements, causing tensions for the families that fled to the forts. Large towns were worried. Um, a lot of people actually left Florida during the Seminole Wars because of the uneasiness. You know, am I going to get, you know, is somebody going to raid my settlement today? Am I going to live through the night? Am I going to make it to the fort if something happens? And so this just left a lot of people uneasy and they just, they left. So the war parties that were raiding were actually led by Osceola. Um, Osceola was actually a very good warrior. They ended up capturing a Florida militia supply train that resulted in killing eight guards and wounding another six. And of course, they used these supplies to better their cause. Now, the warring parties caused destruction, confusion, and resulted in many skirmishes between the militias, the settlers, and the Indians. Osceola also had a few more run-ins with the militias as they continued to raid, and the raids actually caused many of the slaves to even join the Seminoles, creating more black Seminoles. So, they're raiding, they're taking over crops, they're destroying crops, they're stealing cattle, they're stealing slaves. Well, I don't think they're stealing slaves. I think they just freed them. You know, personally, I don't, I don't think they took them with the intent to take them. I think they freed them and the slaves just kind of joined in. So in all this, the U.S. Army had 11 companies, which is about 550 soldiers, and that's just in Florida. Um, the problem is, is that Fort King, which was near Ocala, which is really where a lot of this raiding is going on, only had one company of soldiers. And Fort King actually feared being overrun by the Seminoles. So Fort Brooke had three companies with two more being moved there, so they were going to take half of their companies and move it to Fort King to avoid it being overrun. The soldiers that were being sent to Fort King from Fort Brooke were under Major Francis L. Dade, and they left on December 23, 1835 to head to the other fort. Now, the Seminoles were staking out and were watching all the movements, and they saw the companies leaving, and they began to shadow them. They shadowed them for five days and finally ambushed them on December 28th. The ambush actually became known as the Dade Massacre because the Seminoles killed everybody but three of them in the command. So, that is a lot of people. They killed a lot of people in this one massacre. Three of the soldiers did survive the battle. Private Edward, Edward, excuse me, Edwin de Courcy was hunted down and killed a day later. So then there was only two survivors. The two survivors somehow made it to Fort Brooke to tell the story. Private Random Clark was one of the two, and he was the only one who left an account of the battle. The other one didn't want to talk about it, and I probably don't blame him. But Clark ended up recounting his battle, telling them everything, and surviving. Um, Clark, though, although did end up dying five years after the massacre from lingering issues from his wounds, because, of course, back then, healthcare wasn't what it is today. You got shot, and you were as good as dead if it was in certain parts of your body. Now, the massacre happened in on December 28th. The thing that's interesting about the massacre is, is that the massacre happened on the same day that Osceola and his band shot Wiley Thompson and his six guards. Now, Wiley Thompson was an Indian agent that actually worked with Osceola on many occasions. He worked in Florida to keep peace with the Seminoles and even at one point considered Osceola a friend. They worked together a lot. They worked through a lot of the issues and Osceola 
would talk to Thompson about all the problems and Thompson would work with Osceola to find resolutions. Thompson even gave Osceola a rifle at the point where the rifles were banned from being sold to the Seminoles. So he gave it to Osceola to help him hunt, to feed his family. So he did consider him a close ally. But Osceola and Thompson's relationship was very interesting. Osceola would often barge into Thompson's office with issues, screaming and shouting, and Thompson would listen. Now, one day, though, Osceola picked the wrong day to barge in. Osceola barged in, screaming and shouting, and Thompson got upset. He got so upset that he put Osceola in jail for two days. And the only reason Osceola got released was he promised not to behave like that again. Well, when Thompson put Osceola in jail, he took great offense to this. Like, he was mad. He didn't like it. He... He thought that was an insult. He thought that they were friends, that they could talk. And here he just got put in jail for, you know, airing his grievances. Well, as soon as Osceola got out, he put his plan into action. He began to plot his revenge. And he took his revenge when he shot Thompson and the guards at Fort King. The same day of the Dade Massacre. Now, the discovery of the Dade Massacre and the actions that happened at Fort King caused things to deteriorate rapidly. Like, almost there was no saving this. General Clinch left Fort Drain with 750 soldiers and began to march towards the Seminole stronghold called the Cove of Withlacoochee. The area is a group of lakes on the south side of the Withlacoochee River. It kind of provides um, safe haven, uh, swampland, farming. It's just kind of an area where they they felt safe. And uh, Clinch was headed there. He was going to take them out. And Clinch couldn't find the ford across the river. Like, he couldn't get across the river like it was too deep in certain parts it was too much so they had one canoe so the one canoe was sent across the river well again the Seminoles had been watching everything and as soon as the guards were across the river and they knew that nobody was going to help them uh they were attacked the Seminoles attacked these this one canoe filled with you know men and the only reason the troops survived is literally because they had bayonets they ran out of ammo and they resorted to using their bayonets so, obviously, that wasn't a great idea on Clinch's part, and the Seminoles kind of stood their ground. So, things, again, continued to move quickly. On January 6, 1836, barely into the new year, the Seminoles attacked the plantation of William Cooley, which is near what is present-day Fort Lauderdale. They killed his wife, his children, and his children's tutor. Well, the residents in this area were like, nope, we're out. They went to the Key West. They wanted to get away from the Seminoles. They needed safe protection, so they just the area was abandoned. On January 17th, the Seminoles were met south of St. Augustine at the Battle of Dunlawton. The Battle of Dunlawton took place near what is present-day Port Orange, um, which that is really south of St. Augustine. I would have said Daytona, but okay. Anyways, so Dunlawton is in what would be present-day Port Orange. The battle happened on uh, one of the plantations the Seminoles had attacked, and they destroyed down the coast of Florida. Now, the Seminoles had a habit of kind of going up and down the coast, destroying plantations. There's actually still some remains of some that you can see. Um, and the Seminole, the Seminoles had managed to drive the settlers uh, south of St. Augustine all the way south or all the way north into St. Augustine. Like, they were just raiding this whole area. And there were a couple more skirmishes after the Battle of Dunlawton in that area. Now, of course, the news of what was going on in Florida had spread, and many soldiers were being sent into Florida. Volunteers began to come from neighboring states, and General Gaines put together 1,100 men and volunteers in New Orleans to sail for Fort Brooke. 
Gaines reached Fort Brooke and found it low on supplies, so he led his men to Fort King to gather much-needed supplies and to come back. Gaines is actually the one that found the Dade Massacre. Uh, they found it, they buried everybody in a mass grave, and they reported it when they reached Fort King. However, when he finally got to Fort King, he also found it was low on supplies. So he got seven days' worth of rations from Fort Drain and came back to Fort Brook and also gave some to Fort King. So, as you can tell, Florida's kind of still an outpost at this point. Yes, people are settling it, but where the forts are and the Seminoles, there's not much activity. Um, they just were kind of like their own little island unto themselves at some points. Now, Gaines wanted to do something to help the war effort, so he went back a different path. He was actually going back in the hopes that he can gauge the Seminoles near the cove of Withlacoochee River. He did not have a clue. He did not have a map of Florida, and he had absolutely no idea where he was going. He actually ended up in the same spot that Clinch had been when the Seminoles ambushed his group. Gaines also attempted to ford the river and got caught in gunfire with the Seminoles. Gaines was struck by a bullet and eventually fell back. He didn't have enough to get back to Fort King, so him and his men actually built a fortification, Camp Izzard, and sent word to Clinch that they were now trapped, basically. Gaines, though, however, wasn't going to give up. He wanted the Seminoles to focus on Camp Izzard so that Clinch could come flank the Seminoles in a surprise attack. He wanted him to come around. But, just because one guy has a plan doesn't mean everybody agrees with the plan. General Clinch was actually ordered not to go to Gaines. He was ordered to stay at Fort Drain. I would be really upset if I was Gaines. Like, I've got this great plan. It works. I can keep them at bay. All I need you to do is come help me. And nothing. Clinch, however, eventually disobeyed orders from General Scott, and um, he went to him. He finally reached Camp Izzard on March 6th, and he was able to chase the Seminoles from the camp and help to keep it standing. So, thankfully, nobody really else was, was like, no major massacres happened because Clinch decided to disobey uh, General Scott and said, no, I'm, I'm going to go help this guy. Now, General Scott is actually the guy over the war. He was leading the war, and he was still assembling men and supplies for Florida. Scott eventually got 5,500 men to march on the cove of Withlacoochee. They had enough men to trap the Seminoles, but they all had to get there at the same time. Like, not all 5,500 men are marching from the same direction, so they all have to kind of funnel in at the same time. The first set of men would be under Clinch. They would come from Fort Drain. The second column was under Brigadier General Abraham Eustace coming out of Volusia, and the third column would come from Colonel William Lindsay that was going to march north from Fort Brooke. The idea was that they were all going to arrive on March 25th and attack the Seminoles. General Eustace was moving south when he found Palatkahaha, Plat, no, Palat, hold on, Palatlakaha, Palatlakaha, or Palatka, we're just going to call it Palatka. Palatka is a current city in uh, Florida. It's, just, it's going to be Palatka. Um, he found it, or it, it was actually called Abrahamstown. Um, Abraham had been a member of the Marines at the Battle of Fort Negro. Uh, he was a black Seminole leader. He actually was an interpreter for the Seminoles. He was actually trying to do good. Eustace found the town, burned it down, and moved on. The problem that happened is, is that each of these people, these columns of men, got delayed. And they were each delayed in their own reason. Uh, Eustace was delayed because he burned down the town, and he was also attacked by Seminoles. The other two were, you know, delayed based on weather and supplies. And they finally reached the point at the 28th 
but when they finally got there, they were not in the shape they should have been because it's hot. There's no water. There's mosquitoes. There's no supplies. You know, basically, they were really unprepared to go through uncharted territory in Florida. Eustace finally arrived with them on March 30th, two days later, and they decided to enact their plan. Clinch crossed the Withlacoochee and went to attack, but he found that, that they had deserted the village. The entire plan to attack this village was gone because they just weren't there. The whole thing actually resulted in minimal contact with the Seminoles, and all the men marched back to Fort Brooke. The expedition was seen as a massive failure due to insufficient time for planning and an inhospitable climate. And I think that's really why the Seminoles kept the upper hand is because they knew the climate. They knew the terrain. They knew these people. They, could, they knew where to hide. And so I feel like the reason that the Seminole Wars were as long as they were is because the Seminoles did have the upper hand and the army just didn't learn that. So 1836 was actually a really bad year for the army, especially in Florida. The Seminoles continued to attack the forts. They also burned plantations. They burned down a plantation that's, that Clinch actually owned near Fort Drain. Fort Alabama on the Hillsborough River was abandoned in April. Fort King was abandoned in May. And in June, the soldiers in the blockhouse with the with Lacucci had to be rescued because they had been besieged for almost two months. The army was not winning this war in 1836. July of 1836 found that the Seminoles were attacking the Cape Florida Lighthouse. They severely wounded the assistant keeper in the charge, killed another assistant, and set the lighthouse on fire. That lighthouse actually stood in disrepair for more than 10 years after the siege. Fort Drain was eventually abandoned due to illness. The army was suffering from low morale and illness that was rampant in all the forts. The summer in Florida was known as the sickly season due to the bugs, the weather, the heat, the rain. Um, August also brought the abandonment of Fort Defiance uh, on the edge of the Alachua Prairie. And as all these abandonments and besieges and illnesses began to be rampant, Congress kind of realized that the war was not close to ending. In fact, they were almost losing this war at this point. So they threw more money into it and enlisted more volunteers because they weren't going to give up. They were going to keep Florida. Now, the Florida volunteers were roused again by Richard Keith Call, who had been Clinch's, uh, one of his men when he marched on the cove the first time. And Call had wanted to march on the cove again. He didn't want to give up. He wanted to attack it. He wanted to march on it. He wanted to burn it, and he wanted to move on. Well, Call reached it in October and found that it was flooded. They couldn't ford the river. They couldn't even get across the side. They didn't even know how to get across the side. They could, you know, they could see the Seminoles on the other side, but they, they couldn't get to them. And, in fact, the Seminoles began to fire on the men uh, as they were trying to figure out what to do. Call realized that this was a bad idea. He needed more supplies, and so he went north to find a depot. But the steamship that was supposed to bring them their supplies had sunk earlier. So, they went back to Fort Drain in another failed attempt to take the cove. You'd think after a while they'd give up on this, right? you just learn that this is not going to happen. There's a reason that they hold this point. But Call wasn't going to give up. He wasn't that smart. He tried again in November. This time he actually made it across the river and he found it again abandoned. He headed south and determined to find the Seminoles. He was going to, he was going to find them. He was going to attack them. He was going to hurt them. Like he was, he, he was, this is his job. He was going to do it. And when he did find them, he actually found them in a large camp. So he waited for backup uh, and he entered the Wahoo Swamp on November 21st. The Seminoles resisted the advances but eventually had to retreat upstream. 
Call went after them, but the creek of an, uh, was of an unknown depth, and Major David Monick, who was actually Creek and the first Native American to graduate West Point, was killed trying to determine the depth of the river, and they had to retreat back to Volusia. Call was eventually replaced by Thomas Jessup, who took over the command in Florida. He took the troops back to Fort Brooke, and he was given command because of the four major generals in the army at that time. Three had already failed to go up against the Seminoles. That's right. Four major generals in the entire army. Three had failed. So Jessup was either going to get it done or we were going to give up. And he was determined to get it done. Jessup had just finished suppressing a creek uprising in Georgia and Alabama, so they felt that he was up to the task. Now, Jessup took a different approach. He wanted to go after the Seminole in pieces instead of trying to get all the people in one spot. He was going to wear them down. Jessup eventually had 9,000 men in Florida under his control. He also decided to work with the Navy to have them control, patrol the Florida coast for information to intercept the Seminoles and to help get supplies around the coast. The Navy also began to set up expeditions in the Florida waterways to try and get a better idea of the, routine, of the terrain and the routes. January of 1837 brought a huge change for the Army. The Seminoles and Black Seminoles were slow, slowly being captured or killed. They were slowly starting to kind of turn the tides of this war. The Battle of Hatchie Lusty captured 25 Seminoles and Black Seminoles. And at the end of January, maybe they decided to do a truce. Maybe this is enough fighting. Maybe things aren't going the way either side thought they were. So they decided to bring out about a truce. A truce was arranged, but the fighting did not stop. The Chiefs didn't actually meet with Jessup until the end of February. And March brought the signing of a capitulation by a number of Chiefs that include Micanopy. And the Seminoles and their families would relocate west. I think both sides at this point were tired of fighting. So they were going to try this again. So the Seminoles began to report to the forts for relocation with their families and properties and slaves. But slave catchers began to show up as well. They began to take the black Seminoles uh, because Seminoles could show no actual ownership since they didn't have papers for owning these slaves. And the white settlers were trying to have the Seminoles arrested on various crimes and debts and aiding slavery. Now, these actions did not help this fragile truce, right? Like the Seminoles are doing what they're told and the whites are causing problems. So this actually led to suspicion of Jessup by the Seminole party. Now, a lot of the chiefs had surrendered by May, including McAnope. Two of the main leaders, though, Osceola and Sam Jones, were not surrendering. Uh, they were violently against the relocation. They felt as if they were nothing better than slaves. And they didn't want to give up yet. But the two leaders and their 200 followers came to Fort Brooke and led away with some 700 Seminoles who were surrendered. Now, Jessup kept pressure on the Seminoles even after having so many surrendered. The blacks with the Seminoles had begun to turn themselves in, and Jessup ended up sending most of the black Seminoles and the Seminoles west, just sent them all together. September of 1837 saw the capture of Mikasuki, a band of Mikasukis along with King Philip, who was actually a really important chief in Florida. They also captured a band of Uchis under the leader, Yuki, U, ugh, I cannot say this one, Yuki Billy, a few days later. So Jessup was starting to turn the ties. They were actually starting to capture the Seminoles, they were starting to reclaim their land, supposedly, that they thought they were owed because they owned Florida. And, you know, things are changing. 
Jessup actually used King Philip to send a son to send a message to his son Karakuchi or Wildcat, meaning to arrange a meeting. Jessup showed up to the meeting with Karakuchi and just arrested him. Like that was it. They just arrested him. In October of 1837, Osceola and Kohato, uh, another chief, had requested a parley with Jessup under the meaning of a white flag truce. So they were going to come in without weapons, and they were just going to talk, right? They wanted to meet up and see what the other sides wanted. Now, Jessup met with them south of St. Augustine and had them arrested. Jessup arrested Osceola did not do him any favors because he arrested him under a white flag truce. That... That actually put Jessup in a bad light with a lot of people. Um, and I talk more about it in my Osceola episode. But basically, Jessup, he did the worst thing you could possibly do under a white flag. You know, he betrayed trust. He didn't take it seriously. He didn't understand the rules of engagement. And a lot of people were very mad. This actually kind of changed how people thought about the war when Jessup did this action. Now, Osceola was held at Fort Marion, Marion, or Castillo de San Marco, with 20 other Seminoles, one of which was King Philip, and King Philip actually escaped through a narrow window. Osceola was eventually transferred to Fort Moultrie in South Carolina and died within three months of his capture. Osceola was not treated very well in his time. Um, seriously, go listen to the Osceola episode, and Osceola was a great warrior who deserved better. Jessup had a large army in Florida, and he planned to sweep down the peninsula part of Florida with General Hernandez leading down the east coast and General Eustace on the middle and Colonel Zachary Taylor, yes, that's Zachary Taylor, to the side and the, to the other side in the south. Colonel Taylor saw the first action during these sweeps. Colonel Taylor headed from the Kissimmee area towards Lake Okeechobee. He had 90 surrenders in the first two days. Taylor stopped to build Fort Basinger uh, in what is today Highlands County to leave the to leave a patrol, the surrendered, and the sick that could no longer go on. Taylor continued to see action as he caught up with the main body of the Seminoles on the north shore of Lake Okeechobee. The Seminoles were led by Alligator Sam Jones and by Alligator and then Sam Jones and a recently escaped Coacochi. So they had three leaders at this point and they were leading all these people. They were in the hammock and sawgrass around the lake. Now the ground around the lake is thick mud and Fun fact, sawgrass easily cuts through your skin and leaves a burning sensation. So the Seminoles knew where they were hiding. They were hiding where it was hard to get into them and using the sawgrass as a natural protection. Taylor had about 800 men and the Seminoles were down to about 400. Taylor sent the Missouri volunteers in first and 20 plus men were killed before they could retreat. 200 more men went in and 40% of those 200 were killed before they could retreat. Um, the next infantry went in and they were actually able to drive the Seminoles out of the sawgrass. Taylor flanked them as they ran, but the Seminoles escaped with maybe a dozen casualties on their side. So the Seminoles still knew the land. They still had the upper hand in this fight. Jessup continued to leave every, to lead the different groups of men as Taylor finally came back to the rest of the columns in, in the northern part of Florida. Of course, they decided to continue to go back south on the eastern side of Lake Okeechobee, and the Battle of Jupiter Inlet ensued. It was led by Navy Lieutenant Powell, who found himself outnumbered and actually lost a few men in the skirmish. The Army didn't give up, though. They continued to track the Seminoles and found them on the east coast of the east shore of the lake. So the Seminoles are basically just kind of 
moving around Lake Okeechobee uh, through the Everglades. The Seminoles were in the hammock again, but they were driven back to the Loxahatchee River, and they continued to fight, but slowly had to retreat because they were getting more casualties than they were giving at that point. So Jessup's actually kind of winning the war. February of 1838 saw Jessup meet with Seminole Chief Tuskegee and Halek Hadado, Hadho, Hadjo, Hadjo, where the Seminoles asked to live south of the lake. If they could stop, they would stop fighting if you just give them land south of the lake. So basically, they wanted the Everglades. Um, Jessup was actually fine with this idea because he knew that fighting the Seminoles in the Everglades would be long and drawn out. They knew the land better than he did, and if he didn't have to go down there, he didn't want to go down there. Um, the idea, though, unfortunately, was turned down by Washington because they just wanted this whole thing done. And Jessup was told to detain the Seminoles. So they easily rounded up the 500 that were near the lake um, and waited for their new settlement. May of 1838 saw Zachary Taylor take over the entire command of Florida when Jessup was sent away to a new uh, command. And Taylor concentrated really on keeping the Seminoles out of northern Florida and keeping them in the south part. And he continued to build numerous outposts in Florida to try to keep it under control. The family died down in the summer, but there was a killing of a family on the Santa Fe River near Tallahassee. So that kind of caused tensions to rise again. Now, by the spring of 1839, Taylor had already built over 53 outposts through Florida. And 1839 also brought a demand for the war to be over. Support was dwindling. People didn't understand why they were still fighting for Florida, why this wasn't done. The army had gotten too big, and too much money was actually being funneled into Florida. Popular opinion was also changing. They said, you know, people were beginning to think maybe the Seminoles should just get to stay in Florida. The cost of driving them out was becoming too large for the new government country, and they were tired of doing this. Alexander Macomb was able to reach a settlement with the Seminoles. Sam Jones sent his successor, Cheeto Tus... Oh, I cannot say this one. Tusingi, to meet with Macomb and finalize the treaty. May 19th of 1839 brought an agreement. They would stop fighting and give Seminoles the reservation in South Florida. The summer passed, the agreement held, and peace seemed to be there. A trading post was created on the north shore of the Caloostahatchee River, which is near present-day Cape Coral, and the Seminoles were able to trade freely. 23, 23 soldiers were stationed at the trading post just in case to keep peace, which was probably a good thing. Uh, on July 23rd, 1839, 150 Indians under the command of Billy Bowlegs attacked a trading guard and post. Soldiers and civilians were killed, and the peace agreement was immediately gone. The problem, though, was is that the Americans didn't know which tribe had actually attacked the trading post. They were blaming the Spanish Indians. Some were blaming Sam Jones and the Miccosukee. Nobody really knew. But by August of 1939, Seminole raiding parties were back operating as far, as, far north as Fort White, in Columbia County at the border of the Florida-Georgia state line. The Army had to come back to Florida. The Army was now using bloodhounds to track the Seminoles. They were done dealing with them. Um, but the problem was is that the, the bloodhounds didn't track Indians. They were used to tracking slaves. So the bloodhounds didn't work. Another idea failed. Taylor realized this didn't work, and he began to ramp up forces in Florida again. Taylor's blockhouse and patrol system kept the Seminoles moving around the territory. 
but that meant that they also continued ambush travelers as the army couldn't actually keep them out of most of the areas. Brigadier General Armistead was given control of Florida after Taylor asked to be reassigned in May of 1840. Armistead began sending 100 soldiers out at a time to sweep for the Seminoles and move through Florida. The army actually campaigned in Florida during the summer, which included burning crops and destroying buildings, which is rare because most of the time in the summer, the uh, fighting ceased or died down because it's summer in Florida and they didn't, yeah, you know how that goes. The rain, the heat, the bugs, the no AC, the hurricanes, you know, it just wasn't something that they did. But this time they continued to fight through the summer and, you know, they, I guess they kind of made a little bit of headway. The Seminoles took notice and managed to kill 14 soldiers in just July alone when they realized that the fighting wasn't going to stop. The Army also instituted a new kind of training at Fort Bankhead on Key Biscayne. They were actually starting to train in swamp and jungle warfare. So they realized that the Indians had the upper hand because they knew how to fight in this terrain. So the Army began to try to fight that way. And they even started sending the Navy into the Everglades to patrol it. The Mosquito Fleet was actually launched to intercept traders and smugglers from Cuba and the Bahamas who were supporting the Seminoles. This fleet even attempted to cross the Everglades in, the 18, in April of 1840, but they were attacked by Seminoles. The Everglades were finally crossed and dug out canoes from December of 1840 to January of 1841, and that was the first crossing by white settlers. Now, the fighting continued, and it even started to go as far south as the Florida Keys. Indian Key is a small key in the Upper Keys, and it had become a base where wreckers would stash their valuables obtained from shipwrecks or piracy. So now you have pirates getting in on this. The Indian was there, the Indian, the island was there to protect pretty much, you know, their stuff. And they had protection on this island itself. They had cannons. They had guns. They were not going to give up their stronghold to the Indians. So the pirates began to fight the Indians. On August 7th of 1840, things did change for Indian Key, though. A large band of Spanish Indians snuck onto the key during the night, and 40 out of the 50 people living on the island were able to escape because one guy had insomnia. One guy was awake and sounded the alarm. The naval base on nearby Tea Table Key took up arms and shot cannons to try to, to attack the Spanish Indians on Indian Key. But the Spanish Indians who made it onto the key ended up looting and raising the key, taking most of the uh, piracy's um, valuables. December of 1840 brought an expedition by Colonel Harney with 90 men into the Everglades from Fort Dallas on the Miami River. They traveled in canoes that they had acquired from the Marines and began to go through the Everglades. They were guided by a black man named John who was a former Seminole captive. He knew the area. And they actually encountered some Indians um, throughout their expedition. John eventually led them to the camp of... I'm not going to be able to say this. Chakiakia? Well, okay, we're going to go with Chiquiquia. Uh, this actually camp was a camp of the Spanish Indians. The soldiers actually dressed as Indians and surprised the camp in the early mornings. Chiquiquia was the leader of this camp, and he was on the outside of the camp when the fighting began, but he was promptly killed by the soldiers. A few Indians escaped, but some of the warriors were hanged uh, as Chiquiquia was hung next to him. So now they're taking out the Seminoles, the pirates, and the Spanish Indians. Armistead was still fighting the war in Florida when he used about 55,000 uh, to bribe some of the chiefs to surrender. 
Side note that 55000 back then is close to $2 million today. November of 1840 had Armistead meeting with the, Lock the Locklow, Tuskinegee, at Fort King. Armistead was authorized to give each leader $5,000 if they brought their followers, and then they could transport them west. The chiefs did not agree and ended up fleeing during a night of negotiations. Another fail on the U.S. Army's part. Spring of 1841 meant that Armistead had to send another 450 Seminoles west with another 236 at Fort Brooke waiting for transfer, transport. So not every Seminole is fighting this. Some do want to leave, um, but it's just a very slow process because they had to get them to New Orleans and then they had to get them west. So a lot of them got frustrated in that waiting period. May of 1841, Armistead was eventually replaced by Colonel Worth. Worth was immediately made to cut back because the war was now just unpopular. Opinions had changed so much that they didn't care anymore that Seminoles could stay for all they wanted. Um, Congress was tired of dealing with it. The U.S. population was tired of dealing with it, and everybody just wanted to move forward. The war was actually costing $93,000 a month just to pay the soldiers back in the 1800s. Just imagine how much that would be to this day. Um, now, some people also thought that some of the civilians were trying to prolong the war because they were on the payroll for supplies and other things to help the war. Um, maybe. Who knows? Either way, this war was dragging on. May 1st, 1841, Lieutenant William Tecumseh Sherman, yes, that one, was assigned to escort Kokochi to a meeting at Fort Pierce. Up to this port, Kokochi had been showing up all over Florida, demanding supplies, but mainly liquor. Kokochi dressed in his best. He exchanged silver for a $1 bill with the Bank of Tallahassee and met with Major Thomas Childs. He agreed to bring his people within the next 30 days. Kokochi's people came in freely for those 30 days, but this led Childs to believe that he would not actually turn over his people. Childs was given permission to seize Kokochi on June 4th with about 15 of his followers. Koakochi knew it was uh, useless to escape. He wasn't going to be able to, so he agreed to send messages to urge other Seminoles to turn themselves in and move west. Chiefs, still active in northern Florida, met and agreed uh, that they were going to kill any messengers from the whites. So the north northern Florida Seminoles were not about to give up without a fight. They were not going down. They did not want to leave. Um... Now, the southern chiefs in Florida also actually supported the decision to kill messengers from the whites. They were tired of dealing with them. One messenger was that of the Council of Holodomico. Um, the other chiefs imprisoned him but didn't kill him, uh, partially because he worked with other Seminoles. 211 Seminoles did surrender, though, once these messages were sent out. Hospiturki was arrested with 127 of his followers in August, and the number of Seminoles in Florida were actually decreasing, but that meant that the ones who were still here were able to hide easier, because now there wasn't a group of people with you. It was small groups here and there spotted all around the state. Colonel Worth finally recommended in 1842 to just leave the Seminoles in Florida. Just leave them alone. If they can behave, just leave them in South Florida. And that's what they did. They actually created an informal reservation in South Florida, but since there were still many, there were like a bunch of different bands of Indians in Florida, it kind of made it difficult. They had bands in the Everglades. They had bands in Tallahassee. They had bands near Lake Okeechobee. They had bands near the Charlotte Harbor. So 
you know, getting them all in one area still seemed a little difficult. The Armed Occupation Act was passed in 1842, which provided free land to settlers who improved the land and could defend themselves against Indians. So now they're just giving out land in hopes that they'll keep the Seminoles at bay. The household could claim 160 acres in certain parts of Florida, but they had to live there for five years, clear five acres, and not be within two miles of any military post. So this is kind of the beginning of the Florida land boom. Uh, the last act of war in the Second Seminole War was by William General General William Bailey and prominent planter Jack Bellamy. Sorry, I think that... Wasn't there a pirate black Jack Bellamy? Maybe I'm just making that up. Sorry, I'm just like, was that the pirate? All right, so prominent planter Jack Bellamy led 52 men on a three-day pursuit of a small band of Tiger Tail's braves who had been attacking pioneers. They surprised them and killed all 24 of them. That was the last act of the Second Seminole War. August of 1842, when a meeting between Worth and the remaining chiefs that were still in Florida happened, each warrior got a rifle, money, and a year's worth of rations if they moved west. Most turned it down in hopes that they could just move to the reservation in South Florida. War officially declared the Second Seminole War ending on August 14, 1842. The attack on white settlers, though, continued. They continued as far north as Tallahassee. Um, Tiger Tail was still alive. O.T. Archie was still alive, and they had never said what they would do to their move, um, so they were ordered to come in. Tiger Tail was so ill that he died in New Orleans waiting on transport once he did turn himself in to, be go, to go out west. The rest of the Indians, they rounded up and were sent out west. Worth believed that the other Indians in Florida would stay in the reservation and would no longer cause problems for white settlers. Florida seemed to be at peace again. The Indians mostly stayed on their reservations with a few minor clashes happening. They still wanted permanent removal of the Indians out of Florida, but this peace was working for now. The Indians eventually got restless, though, and serious incidents again be began to occur again as people began to move onto their lands again. Um, you know, so peace was a fragile thing. The Indians finally had their reservation, and you were trying to take it from them again. The government finally had the resolution again to try to remove all the Seminoles from Florida again. They put pressure on the Seminoles, and the Seminoles lasted until they had enough. And then, then we had a third Seminole War. Alright guys, that brings us up to the third Seminole War, which I will talk about in another episode. Um, Florida has a really interesting history. Uh, a lot of people have come to Florida, a lot of people have lived in Florida, and a lot of people don't want to leave Florida. I kind of agree with all of them, you know. Uh, it's a great place to be. Maybe not to pay rent right now. Rent is extraordinarily high. Cost of living in Florida is really, really high. But if I was a Seminole back then, I don't think I would have wanted to leave either. Thanks for listening today, guys. No Florida man. We've already talked about a lot of Florida men in this last part of the episode. I hope you guys have a great week. Um, if you have any suggestions, you want to just say hi, hit me up on any of the social media sites. You can email me at thatfloridafeel at gmail.com. I do have some really exciting stuff coming up, a couple interviews and some great episodes, so don't forget to stay tuned. If you haven't yet, a review would greatly be appreciated. Share those memes. Stay warm if you are not in Florida, if you're in the northern part of Florida. Stay warm, guys. Wear your sunscreen. You can still get sunburned in December. Trust me, I have done it. Drink your water. And as always, guys, that's your daily dose of sunshine. Hey, guys, did you ever want to try something that is just distinctively Florida? 
Or what about the taste of Florida, like the true essence of Florida in a drink? Then you need to try black coral rum. It's like capturing the sunshine state in a glass. But black coral rum just isn't any rum. It's not your average rum. It's actually a celebration of Florida's vibrant culture and history. So with each sip, you're going to be transported back to orange groves, swaying palm trees, and it's going to be as smooth as the sand beneath your feet, whether you're drinking the white rum, the spiced rum, or the black rum. But what really makes this rum special? That's the dedication of the locals who craft it. It's made by those who share a deep love of Florida and only use in Florida ingredients. So if you're looking for something that is distinctly Florida, then look no further than black coral rum. Where do you find black coral rum, you ask? You're gonna find it at their distillery in West Palm Beach. Their distillery is Steel Tie Spirits. Can't make it to West Palm? That's okay. Check out their website, steeltiespirits.com. And trust me, you're gonna sip on this and you're gonna think nothing but Florida.